Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. In what is a first, the Biden-Harris administration has committed to advancing racial equity. And President Biden came out swinging this week. Our soul will be troubled as long as systemic racism is allowed to persist. Systemic racism that was emboldened by President Donald Trump's policies on so many issues, including housing and xenophobia. And the Biden administration rolled back Trump's ban on diversity and inclusion training for federal employees and contractors. The administration's focus has been criticized as both too much and too little. Race and racism are still a third rail in this nation. Dr. Gail C. Christopher believes it is, quote, time that we view the work of ending racism as a communal effort. Toward that goal, Christopher, who is an award-winning social change agent and former senior advisor and vice president of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, is also an advisor to the effort to establish the United States Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation. She knows that facilitating hard conversations as a society will not be easy, but she believes it is necessary to move forward. And some in Congress agree. Dr. Christopher joins Equal Time to talk about the Biden administration's commitment to racial equity, why a commission is a necessary step toward progress, and the policies that should have priority when envisioning a more just America. Welcome to Equal Time, Dr. Christopher. Before we talk about the now, I think we really have to look back, even if just a little. So we had a President Barack Obama and then President Donald Trump. Can you explain and talk a bit about what that says about this nation's attitude on race? That is a perfect question. You know, my work on on racism, and I think we need to be clear that the issue is racism, um, focuses on the, the embedded belief in a false hierarchy of human value. Now, that has surfaced lately with a very explicit reference to white supremacy. And we all have seen that, you know, but the election of an African-American president was the ultimate affront to the fallacy of a hierarchy of human value. It really did say to those who were still holding on to white supremacy and racial hierarchy, it just, it just was a total affront to that, to that belief system. And so, I, and I think that that was manipulated and leveraged you know, in the Trump administration, both in the election and, of course, you know, during the administration. So what it says to be direct in response to your question is that we have work to do in this country. We have to disavow and just totally eliminate the idea of a, of a hierarchy of human value, the idea of judging and, and providing opportunity for people based on their superficial physical characteristics. We have to get rid of racism in this country. Well, we saw uh, some stark and violent divisions in America on display in Washington and really throughout the country in all the protests and counter-protests. And we also saw Joe Biden elected with a multiracial coalition, and he made a pledge for equity, and he came out this week, uh, he came out with his his proclamations and his executive actions on equity. Can such a big challenge be overcome with Biden, with his administration's equity initiative? I am so 
happy and excited and and uh, hopeful with these equity initiatives and with this expressed, straightforward, direct commitment of this administration. But we still have to work on eliminate, identifying and eliminating the, the belief system, the ideas, the fears, the emotions that drive our divisions and that can lead to the kinds of violent behaviors that we have seen. I mean, today is the National Day of Remembrance or the International Day of Remembrance for the Holocaust. Few people recognize that, that Hitler's platform, his whole uh, regime was informed by racism in America. The people that created that horrific uh, pattern and platform, they actually visited America and studied the racist laws at the state levels within the southern states of this country and then went back to Germany to design, you know, this strategy of Nazism. So, so racism is the problem and it doesn't go away unless you do work to try and make it go away. Not just the consequences of racism, but racism itself. Well, his equity proposals, is it more than words? So what are some of the issues that you think are the most urgent and the policies that need to have priority. Right. And I, I mean, he honed in on the housing inequities and the, the, the discrimination and the residential segregation in his executive orders yesterday. He honed in on the prison issues that have to be dealt with. You know, one of the fundamental aspects of, of maintaining racism is through very um, unique and, and uh, very creative strategies of separation. You know, everything from separating children from their parents in the immigration situation to, to, to separating and, you know, foster care system and the putting people in prison disproportionately. These are all manifestations of the residual pillar of separation that's part of maintaining racism in this country. So I think he's got the right priorities. Of course, the most important priority is to fight COVID-19, given the, the extreme disproportionate burden that communities of color are experiencing there and the economic impact having such an extreme impact on communities of color as well. That's part of the equity strategy, and I, I think they're, they're right on with that. I do say, however, that in order to not have the resistance and the backlash that we saw after the Obama administration, we've got to do the work of healing, of truth-telling, of building understanding and, and building a deeper sense of connection in this country. And that has to be as intentional as the efforts to divide this country have been. And that's very interesting, the way you connect the separation policies, separating us to the connection. And that is yep. the healing. Um, so that leads us to truth, racial healing, and transformation, which is uh, a concept uh, that you came up with. But you, uh, it has been used. You've been advising uh, members of Congress. How how would this work? And tell us about your work with Congress and particular uh, congressional members on this commission. Yes, there is now a movement, a U.S. TRHT commission movement. Uh, Barbara Lee had the courage to, to invite some of us to help her develop a resolution that calls for the creation of a U.S. Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation Commission. And we started this work with her over three years ago. Uh, and with the help of her staff and others, 
we were able to galvanize over 170 co-sponsors of this resolution. She actually introduced it in partnership with all of the caucuses of color there in Congress right after the the murder of George Floyd. So this has been a a journey in terms of the national commission effort. And we were so uh, happy to have Senator Cory Booker introduce the resolution into the Senate. Uh, And so we're excited about that. Tell us now that you've gotten those sponsors in the House and Senate and it's moving forward, how would it work exactly? Uh, What does it look like? Well, and you know, that's our big question, right? How does it work? Uh, We're figuring that out right now, now that we have a new administration and frankly, a new Congress, right? So this new Congress, we have to reintroduce the resolution or we have to get, you know, executive authority to, to do the work. But it begins with, The framework, which is so important, the framework begins with narrative change. It's a Mm five-part framework, but we have to bring all the resources we can to bear to tell a new narrative of our country, to tell the truth of our country in all its diversity and all its complexity, to create a narrative that honors our collective humanity in ways that we've never done before as a country. And we have to bring to bear all the resources we can to actually actualize that new story of America that is honest and that is humble and that recognizes both our strengths and our horrific weaknesses and and actions that have hurt so many people. Then we have to do the work, the actual on-the-ground work of of bringing diverse people together to to learn the skills of empathy and perspective-taking and compassion and listening, deep listening. That's real work. Those are skills that we don't learn in school. But if a democracy is going to work, we have to learn those skills and they have to become the expected norm, particularly of elected officials and leaders. So that's a mass mobilization in this country of people doing work in every jurisdiction every congressional district, every city, every town, but it is happening. And so we can bring it to scale. And once we, we have built up some connective tissue that, and we're in this together, working on this, then we can examine the policies and transform the policies and practices that have to do with separation, that have to do with the legal system, and that, have to, that reflect the economy. The five aspects of this work are narrative change, relation and trust building, separation, the law, and the economy. You know, when we created this transformation vision, we asked ourselves, well, if racism is a lie, right, it isn't true, there is no hierarchy of human value, how has it been sustained and institutionalized and structured for centuries in America? And we answered it by saying through separation, through designing a legal system that enforces this lie, all the way from enslavement eras and the allocation of indigenous people to reservations. You know, we have used our legal structures to maintain racial hierarchy. And then most importantly, our economy thrives and is built on racial hierarchy. So that's just the honest truth, right? So the policies that we have to create, you know, we were trying to make it simple but but comprehensive enough to drive the the transformation. That's why we don't call it truth and reconciliation, Mary, Mm. because, you know, to reconcile implies coming back together. America was never together. You're just being real. You're just being real. (laughs) You know, this country was conceived 
in this fallacy of a hierarchy of human value. That was the only justification for taking the lands and decimating the indigenous communities and people and enslaving. But this wasn't a temporary, you know, uh, division. This was for centuries this has been maintained. And so while international truth and reconciliation models, you know, inspired us, we knew we had to adapt something that would take into account the complex and protracted history of America. Oh, well, we've, we saw the Trump administration ban diversity and inclusion training for federal employees and contractors. And then we saw one of Biden's first action was to roll that back. But we already um, are seeing some of opposition. Some have placed Biden's pledge for unity in opposition to his efforts to tackle systemic racism with targeted policies to address inequality. Um, can you address that criticism? I, I, I can. Um, and that's why we have to be willing to do the harder work, you know, of developing the skills and the capacities to, to do what we call perspective taking, to do deep listening, uh, to move from a place of compassion and understanding. You cannot, you cannot heal or overcome racism through confrontation alone. You know, you really, Abraham Lincoln said it in his early debates with, with, with Douglas. He said, you know, the public will, the public sentiment is the most important thing. With it, you can accomplish anything. Without it, you, you really can't accomplish anything. And so this public sentiment, these, these corners, people going to their separate corners, this division will continue if all we do is act if all we do is, is make policy change, right? If we don't get down into communities and try to listen to people and heal our divides, change our perspectives, see our humanity. Some people, I, I had a, a corporate executive say to me after the murder of George Floyd and the mobilization on, on racism, anti-racism mobilization, he said that he learned more about racism in the six weeks after the murder of George Floyd that he had learned in 60 years in his life, right? He mm-hmm. had no idea that systemic racism was as embedded as it was, right? So I'm not saying we'll, we'll, we'll get all of the extreme people, extremists, to understand it and disavow racial hierarchy, but we can expand that middle, that middle ground of people who have an open heart and an open mind and a, a desire to see democracy work and who can see their own self-interest in it. Uh, but, but we have to work at that. You know, just as this past administration, I believe, worked at expanding the levels of extremism and the commitment to the extreme points of view, we have to work at expanding the middle uh, and unifying, unifying in the sense of, quite honestly, building our, our compassion and our understanding of each other as full human beings. And that's what racism does not allow. It allows us to hate each other. And as, as Dr. King said, you know, um, darkness, you know, cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so this work of racial healing, the healing is in the agency. It's in the empowerment. Mm-hmm. It's in the affirmation. And ultimately, it's in the love. Well, you're the uh, the optimist, but I will say when you talk about gathering a- allies that much of your work has been in the area of health equity. And 
I noticed that a lot of people did notice more the disparities in health care and in that in that area when the COVID-19 crisis hit and it became so obvious. So did you, uh, did the heightened awareness get more allies for your work? And has there been progress uh, really that, that was highlighted by this terrible pandemic and the disparate treatment and impact? I appreciate the question. And the short answer is yes. Uh, many people, well-educated people, scholars, you know, they were just taken aback by the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. It enabled a different kind of conversation. You know, we have had this movement for better than 20 years, maybe 25, of what we call the social determinants of health, right? And Mm -hmm. it's an attempt to help people understand that the conditions you live with, either poverty or, or lack of access to healthy food or chronic stress from violence exposure and fear or, you know, inadequate income, inadequate education, all these things actually shape our health. Uh, and our health, of course, is reflected in our immune system capacity and how well we've, we're able to fight off disease. So COVID showed us, became a laboratory for how the social determinants of health make people more vulnerable from a physiological you know, standpoint. But also because it's a contagious disease and contagion is, was directly related to exposure to people, even you know, asymptomatic people, the people who are in the service industries that we now call essential workers, <laughs> right? But the people in the- They've gone from invisible to essential, right? <laughs> you know, uh, not essential enough though to, to, to launch a major national effort to, to reduce the exposures, right? But that was before. But so, but so people who have greater exposure were going to be more vulnerable to not only catching the disease, but, but also there's the issue of the infrastructure, the, the medical system itself, and the access to care. Uh, all of these things combine to be a, a poison pill almost for communities of color. And we see it, whether it's people on Native American, you know, uh, communities or reservations, as as they're termed uh, by you know our government, but or people, you know, in the African American communities, the immigrant immigrant communities, Latinx, Latino communities, people who are more likely to be in the service industry, more likely to have pre existing medical conditions that are related to a lifetime of stress and inadequate opportunity for healthy behaviors. All of these things came together in a cumulative way to to give us the disparities that we have today. And I hope to mobilize us to to reform, to transform, you know, our approach to health and well-being in this country. But racism is at the heart of it. And mm-hmm. I hope we'll we'll move beyond denial of that. Yeah. So you do think out of this crisis might come some progress? I do. I think we can no longer pretend that racism does not drive the social determinants. It does. Institutional structural racism creates the social conditions in America with which people live. And I think we we now can't deny that anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I do think there will be some improvement if we come together to make the improvements. And that's why, you know, it's not enough to call for unity we really have to bring our best minds to the table to design a strategy for unity. And a strategy for unity is not in opposition to a strategy for equity. 
it is a complement and a necessary mm-hmm. precursor and component of our equity strategy. And that's what I feel is, is missing. We don't have a strategy for unity yet, and we need to do that. Now, we, you talked a little bit about other countries who have dealt with systemic racism and social inequality, and they have had their own commissions. And I've traveled a bit in South Africa, and they had their commission to tell the truth. Uh, and they had to be established before any healing and progress can happen. Has that been one of America's problems, that we haven't faced our own truth? It is such a problem. In fact, not only did we not face our truth, we reversed the truth and told a lie, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And every time there was a movement to step up and assert our right to equity and fairness, there was the backlash to create another narrative, right? Uh, So we've seen it reverse uh, after Reconstruction. You know, it was was horrible what happened in terms of Reconstruction to suppress the opportunity for equality, equity, and fairness. And this backlash that we're experiencing now post the Obama administration, and, you know, it's only gained strength, you know, over the last four years. So we have to do this truth work, but we have to do it. We have to learn from our peers, you know, in South Africa and around the world. There have been over 40, maybe 45 truth and reconciliation efforts. Most often they follow an immediate period of, of war or divisiveness, mm-hmm. or even like apartheid in South Africa. But here, we've, we've, we've buried this truth for 400 years, you know, for centuries. And so we have to go about it in a different kind of way than some of the other places. And that's why we built in transformation rather than reconciliation. And that's why we built in healing, because there has to be an acknowledgement of the harm and a, a sense of accountability for the healing. Yeah, um, it's right. I'm based in North Carolina, and I had someone come up to me, a woman, a white woman, and say, I feel that I am a well-educated person, but I just learned about the 1898 uh, coup of a multiracial government in Wilmington, North Carolina, and that's right here at home, and she couldn't believe it. And you're right, that's the optimism that she was saying, I need to learn more. Um, so, uh, what keeps you, you sound very upbeat, even though you have said often in our conversation that the work is hard. So what, what, how are you and how do you see it right now? Thank you for asking that question. You know, I am blessed. My journey in this work began with the loss of my firstborn child uh, that was how I was introduced to the concept of infant mortality, you know, which oh, is sorry. the euphemism, you know, thank you for, for the way black mothers and black babies, you know, die, right? Mm-hmm. Just the simple act of giving birth, right? And, uh, but it was that loss at an early age that cemented my determination to have this country move beyond the the reality of of racism and the reality of health disparities. And so uh, I created a a healing center here in Maryland in her honor and in honor of her memory. And I just, I don't have a choice, I don't think, in this lifetime other than to bring my my energy and my gifts to helping this country move beyond this ridiculous, absurd, and all it is is a, is a fallacy. It's a myth. It's an idea. And we have overcome antiquated ideas 
in the past, we can overcome this antiquated idea. And the fact of the matter is we won't realize the potential of our democracy until we do this work. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can actualize the gift we've been given. We can honor the, the, the struggles and the pain of so many people, the, the loss of life of Native people, of, of Africans who've been enslaved. We, we owe our history, our ancestors, we owe them the accountability and the responsibility to get this right. And we've been humiliated in the eyes of the world right now. I think our way out of that humiliation is through getting this right and doing this work. Uh, so I have a strong spiritual foundation. I believe that I am loved and, and guided and embraced. And, and so it gets, you know, it gives me the energy to keep doing this work. I always ask, um, my guess this, because everyone always has this passion and I always, I can't know it all. So I say, well, what question have I not asked you that you wish that I had? Because you really have something to say. Well, that's a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> Let me, I, I wish you would ask me, what would I say to President Biden if I had the chance? If mm -hmm. I had a chance to talk to him directly and look him in the eye, what would I say to him? And? What would you say? <laughs> I would say, President Biden, there's never been a president in America who had more expressed commitment to equity than, than yours. And I applaud that. But we must do the work of healing this country. We must try to bring as many people together to build the, cre the critical mass of support that the equity work will require if it's going to be sustained. You know, I've lived long enough to see all the policies created and reversed when the political winds change. So part of the work of achieving equity is sustaining equity. And that requires building the public will and using all the tools, the 21st century tools at our disposal to do that. And the public sector can play a major role in doing that. I know Dr. Christopher's time is, is tough. And I also t tell our listeners, what, what are some of the things that keeps me up at night? So I will ask you that too, if anything is keeping you up at night. Well, one of the things that keeps me up at night is our failure to anticipate the backlash uh, and to have strategies to counter that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the opposition to the the reinstating or to eliminating the, the rule that, you know, said we can't teach about racial equity. And, you know, this I think they call it the 1776 executive yes. order. Uh, we should have anticipated the backlash to that and, and put things in place to 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 deal with that backlash. You know, in other words, we can't just stay in our silo. We have to we have to anticipate and understand. And I, I think that, uh, you know, we can do that. And we're not as a, I'm not aware that we're really working on that. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that keeps me up at night is that our economy has turned has been turned upside down. So we have an opportunity to redesign this economy in a much more equitable and fair way. But it's going to require some out-of-the-box thinking. You know, it's going to require creating opportunities for people that we never imagined could have been created. We could create a new workforce of people who are dedicated to this racial healing work, for example, right? Uh, so 
I, I just want us to be creative enough to come out. You know, the, the slogan they used in the campaign was build back better. I, I just want to make sure the better part of that is getting the creative attention it needs, even in the midst of the survival that we're, we're struggling with in terms of COVID-19. Well, thank you for doing the work, Dr. Christopher, and thank you for being a guest on Equal Time. Uh, you have imparted, really given a lot of folks marching orders, not just our leaders, but everyday Americans uh, in their churches, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their homes. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show, and thank you for such such questions that allowed me to, to think so clearly and express so completely, you know, my passion for this. So I appreciate the opportunity. So what's keeping me up at night? The enormity of the challenges facing the country as it fights to keep Americans healthy, body and soul. Joe Biden said he was motivated to run for president after the events at Charlottesville, Virginia, the Unite the Right march, the killing of counter-protester Heather Heyer, and the reaction of then-President Trump, who found good people on both sides. Biden says he is fighting for America's soul. And now he's turning to his faith for strength. But even that refuge for the country's second Catholic president has become a dividing line for some. As Dr. Christopher acknowledged, this is the beginning of America's healing journey. I write about it all in my latest CQ Roll Call column. Check it out. So, what's keeping you up at night? Let me know with a tweet at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.